Well, good afternoon. She was truly surprised. I told her that there were a lot of people here, and they'd been here in the rain, and she said, oh, really? I said, oh, she came out and said, whoa, <laughs> yeah, and touched. So I'm Carla Hayden, and welcome to the Central Library. We are so pleased that all of you came today. We know why you're here. And to come and wait, and it's just something uh, for librarians to see people lined up to come into a library on a Sunday and a rainy. So I want to thank you. And I promise your wait will be worth it. I just want to let you know that on your way out, if you didn't get the parking vouchers, we now have parking vouchers. If you parked in the um, Franklin Street garage, I just ask one of the staff members. And if you could just refrain from taking pictures while Ms. McMillan is speaking. After that question and answer, she says, fine. She's still crying. <laughs> so, so if you could just, just hold on after that and during the thing, because um, as you can imagine, as soon as we announced that Ms. McMillan was coming, I'm telling you, we were the most popular thing in town, Ms. McMillan. <laughs> You know, there aren't many times that a librarian gets to be, you know, big time. <laughs> but as soon as we announced that Terry McMillan was coming, I was getting phone calls, emails, tweets. People were offering to take me to lunch. <laughs> I didn't do it. I was tempted. But it, it just shows the power and the significance. When we were talking upstairs, I just thank Ms. McMillan for proving that people of color like to read, will read. And she opened the floodgates, and now there, there's belief there. We even have Barnes & Noble here selling books. 20% off for her new book. Here, here she is, without further ado. And I want one more thing, I have to say, what's one more thing? Because it was five years ago that Ms. McMillan was here. And five years ago, a group of ladies were here and they decided to start a book club. And it's the ladies of the EDBL. Can you think what that is? Eat, drink, and be literary. So they're here, and here's Terry McMillan. Thank you. Wow. Thank you all very, very much, I swear. How many of you are from Baltimore? Washington, D.C.? Thank you all very much for coming out on this kind of a dreary... California? I'm from California. Well, no, I'm not from California. I live in California. <laughs> There's a difference. Anyway, I just really want to say thank you so much. Um, I think last time, who was here last time, five years ago? Oh, you remember I was in bad shape. <laughs> but uh, I have gotten too happy, okay? So anyway, I hope that you guys really like this book 
And um, don't compare it to waiting to exhale because it's sort of like, you know, you have two kids. Which one do you like the best? They're both your kids, okay? Um, they're two different stories. That's all. And I'm not trying to apologize, seriously. And I didn't assume that everybody read Waiting to Exhale. I didn't. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> anyway, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read... Um, can you hear me okay? Okay. I'm going to read um, the first chapter just because it's because of certain things that happen in the book. I, it's hard for me to read subsequent chapters, and it's still early. And um, don't read along with me, please. Don't you remember when you were little? Didn't you like it when somebody read to you? Well, that's what this is about. Okay, so when I was little, no, my mama didn't read to me. But um, when I used to read to my son, you know, you know, read it again, mommy. You know, so, and it's wonderful to have someone read to you, I hope. Nobody reads to me. Anyway, um... But thank you again. And I hope you can hear me. There's no kids in here. Little kids? Good. It's not, this is, sometimes it's R-rated. A little bit of X. This is called The Deep End. And this is uh, Savannah. Um, I don't know. That, uh, she, this is her chapter, okay? Are you sure you don't want to come to Vegas with me? My husband asked for the second time this morning. I don't want to go for two reasons. First of all, it's not like he's inviting me for a hot and heavy weekend where I'll get to wear something snazzy and we'll see a show and casino hop and stay up and make love and sleep in and order room service. <laughs> not even close. It's another exciting trade show. Excuse me. It's another exciting trade show. Isaac builds decks, fences, gazebos, and pergolas, and as of a few months ago, playhouses. He's in love with wood. Can I help it if I, I don't get all worked up hearing about galvanized nails or color-clad chain links and breakthroughs and screws and joists? I don't bother answering him because he's known for weeks. I'm under a deadline for a story I'm doing on the rise in teenage pregnancy in Arizona, Phoenix in particular which is the other reason I can't go. I've been sitting in front of my laptop in my pajamas for the past 40 minutes waiting for him to leave, so I'll finally have three and a half hours, three and a half days to myself to focus. But he is taking his sweet time. I didn't hear you. He's looking for something. I dare not ask what. You'd have the room all to yourself most of the day. You could still work. You know that's not true, Isaac. I take a sip of my lukewarm coffee. I've been to so many of these conventions trying to be the supportive wife, but I always get stuck with the wives, most of whom just want to sit around by the pool all day reading romance novels or People magazine while they sip on margaritas and eat nachos or linger in the malls for hours with their husband's credit cards, trying on resort wear for the cruise they're all going on in the near future. I'm not crazy about cruises. I went on one with Mama and my sister, Sheila, and those narrow hallways gave me the creeps because I've seen too many horror movies where the killer jumps out of the doorway and snatches you inside. 
after two or three days of being out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the ocean, and no land in sight until you wake up not knowing what country you might be in front of, by day four, I was ready to jump off our back and balcony and backstroke home. And then there are those obligatory convention dinners. I'd sit there in one of the hotel ballrooms at a table full of contractors and their now gussied up wives trying to be sociable. But I was basically making small talk since they never discussed anything that might be going on in the world. Call me elitist. But this often made me feel like an alien who'd been dragged to another planet by my husband because he, as well as they, didn't seem to think producing television shows about cultural and social issues was half as interesting as all the things they could build out of lumber. It truly irks Isaac that people don't respect or appreciate the role wood plays in our lives. <laughs> that we aren't aware of how much we take it for granted, as if it'll always be here, and how much we rely on it yet overlook its value to the point that we ignore it and its beauty. It would be nice if he still saw me the same way. For about eight of the past ten years, it felt like he did. Isaac passes behind me. As Isaac passes behind me, he smells like green apples and fresh squeezed lemons. For a split second, it reminds me of when we used to linger in the bathtub surrounded by sage and lemongrass candles, my back snug against his chest, his arms wrapped around me and our toes making love. Those were the good old days. I snap out of it. <laughs> now, He's pushing my favorite mustard-colored duffel across these terracotta tiles with those size 14 boots, leaving black scuff marks behind him as he simultaneously pulls a white sweatshirt over a white undershirt. If I could, you know I would, I say, while checking my email. Of course, there are back-to-back -back messages from Robin, a joke I don't bother to read, and an attachment about a new motionless exercise she told me and Gloria about last week. She believes almost everything she sees on TV. You just don't want to go, he says, and starts looking through his pockets to make sure he has everything. He doesn't. I know just about all his patterns. Why don't you just come out and say it? Because it wouldn't be true, Isaac. I rarely lie, though, although I'm not always 100% honest. This is just one of those times. Then I guess I'll see you on Tuesday after rush hour. He walks over, presses his palms against my shoulder blades, gives them a little squeeze, bends over, and gives me a peck on the cheek. I don't feel a thing except the scratchy new growth on his face. You have everything, I ask. What if I don't? Would it matter to you? Of course it would matter to me, Isaac. Right before he gets to the door leading to the garage, he turns and looks at me as if he doesn't believe me. Isaac knows we're on shaky ground. I'm seriously beginning to think you might be racist, Savannah. He is trying to push a, find a button to push, but I'm not falling for it. Part of our problem is he's forgotten how to talk to me. He's forgotten how to ask me a question that doesn't put me on the defensive. All those sessions with the marriage counselor, for some of which he played sick or was too busy drilling or hammering, aren't saving us. I'm tired of this war which is why I'm ready to hold up a white flag. Aren't you supposed to be picking up somebody? So now you're trying to get rid of me, is that it? Yes, how's that for an honest answer? But I feel my body stiffing using the truth to lie. Have a good time, Isaac. Wait a second. Did you remember to make the loan payment? I only ask because he seems to have had a little bout of amnesia about off and on the past six or seven months. It's the cause of brand new friction. 
I have no idea what he's been doing with his money. It's not gambling, that much I do know. He stays away from the India casinos and usually dreads these conventions when they have them in Vegas. He thinks gambling is too much of a gamble because people often lose. But that's not really it. Isaac is really just too cheap. Yes, I made it, he says. As a matter of fact, I paid two. Thank you. And have a good time, I say, without moving my fingers, which are now frozen two or three inches above the keys of, the key of my um, laptop. I co-signed for this loan to help him start his business, and after it took off, he took over the payments. Unfortunately, I've discovered by default that Isaac isn't as proficient managing his finances as he is at building. To this day, he refuses to hire a bookkeeper, which is one of the reasons why his taxes are always late. Good luck on your research, he says, and heads for the garage. He is so disingenuous. He hardly ever watches my shows anymore. For years, he pretended he was interested, but over time, he couldn't even fake it anymore. He thinks my stories show problems that can't be solved, so what's the point? I finally hear the door shut. I turn around and stare at it. It's red, my bright idea. I'm hoping to hear the garage door go up. There it is. Then the engine roars in his truck. Instead of turning my attention back to my screen, I wait for that handle to turn. Sure enough, in he comes. I forgot my cell phone. He dashes down the hallway to our bedroom. To this day, Isaac reminds me of a black Paul Bunyan, except he's finally getting a few strands of gray. His mustache and goatee look like they've been sprayed with silver dust. He's still sexy as hell, which is a shame because it doesn't seem to be serving any purpose. <laughs> I shouldn't dog him too much, though, because Isaac is a good man. I just think marrying each other wasn't the best thing we could have done for each other. He stops dead in his tracks, pivots, comes over, and kisses me in the same exact spot. This time, he lets his lips stay a millisecond longer. I appreciate the gesture. I'll call you when I get checked in. I make myself some French toast, put a few strips of bacon in the microwave, and sit back in front of my laptop. My mind isn't on teen pregnancy, so I bookmark the sites I may want to look at later. I'm thinking about the man that just left, the one I once loved harder than all the others. I was a 40-year-old love star black woman who'd never been married and didn't think it was still possible. I met Isaac in church. He was tall, dark, and handsome, but aren't they always? I was sitting near the front and, find, and found myself going deaf as the minister delivered yet another guilt-laced sermon about the evils of temptation because I was slowly being hypnotized by Isaac Hathaway's soft black eyes up there in the third row of the choir. This was a small church. It was as if he appeared out of nowhere. I certainly would have noticed him before, and it's not like I went to church every Sunday, but it's not like I didn't have faith in God, because I did and still do. I'd been on a whole lot of folks' prayer lists, and God had known for years that my address was still 111 Unlucky in Love Avenue. <laughs> on this particular Sunday, this man followed me down those church steps to the parking lot and seduced me with my clothes on, and after he smiled at me, introduced himself and in a slow baritone, said, You are absolutely beautiful. I blushed brick red because he was lying through his teeth. I was not then, nor am I now, even remotely close to beautiful. Now, I have been known to be attractive on special occasions, and I do my best to project as much beauty as I can muster from deep inside, though I often fail. On this particular day, I was wearing a boring brown dress I thought was perfect for church, 
since it's not a venue for which I dress to draw attention to myself. And back then, I hadn't gotten into the habit of exercising on a regular basis, and my dress didn't exactly conceal enough of my curves for my test taste, and eyes that couldn't possibly have been moved by my breast because they were and still are close to non-existent. The pearls were noticeably fake, which should have given them a clue I wasn't loaded, although I make out okay. And besides, who under 50 wears real pearls to church? I never did hear him sing solo. I would later think God had saved the best for last. Any woman in my position would have felt the same way and probably done the same thing. Parachuted into his arms or maybe it was his bed first. I don't really remember, but who cares? He was intoxicating, and any fool would have wanted more of him. All I know is he made me feel brand new, like lit a fire in me that burned bright orange. His smile reduced me to mashed potatoes, and I loved that he held my hand wherever we went and stroked my palm with his thumb. We prayed together. A few months later, he moved into my house. I knew I'd gotten lucky because I found a man who wasn't afraid to admit his faith in God and also came with his own tool belt. Nothing stayed broken for long. Isaac had magical hands. He would shampoo and condition my hair, brush it at night and oil my scalp. He massaged my feet while I read and he watched TV. He put lavender and Lang Lang oil in my bath water and let me lean way back. I could have lived forever in his arms. He made me feel safe, necessary, to the point I started believing I was beautiful. For years, he kissed me twice a day, every single day, and not a peck like that bullshit he gave me today, but a warm, slow, succulent kiss complete with arms I dreamed about when I was alone on a business trip in a hotel room. Isaac is the best kisser in the world, and to date, the best lover I've ever had in my life. He was my Mr. Wonderful, and I thought he was going to be my Mr. Once and for All. There was no escaping the hold he had on me or the spell he put on me. So after a year of complete bliss, I surrendered and said, of course, I'll be your wife. When he lost his job putting up a fence along the Arizona-Mexico border because the company had gotten busted for hiring illegals, I wasn't worried. He was only 26 units shy of getting his degree in engineering. Unfortunately, my world started shrinking not long after I married Mr. Wonderful. Since I didn't have kids, I was used to doing what I wanted and going where I wanted. I ate out at least two or three times a week, enjoyed going to plays and live concerts and dance performances, loved foreign films, didn't mind the subtitles. In fact, I used to go to the movies at least once a week, except in August when all the slashers came out. I loved reading in bed. Unfortunately, Isaac couldn't go to sleep without the television blaring. Turns out he wasn't keen on eating in restaurants except Denny's and the Olive Garden. I never saw him open a book, but he couldn't get enough of outdoor projects or dream decks and patios or wood magazine. He didn't like taking Bonafide vacations because it was a waste of good money. He was also afraid of flying, which meant everywhere we went had to be by car. We rented movies, except during the holidays. Isaac also liked fish. So once a month, we went to the aquarium. Yahoo. (laughs) Last August, I flew to Chicago. This is 2005. For the Democratic National Convention, and was able to hear the young Senator Barack Obama give a speech that sounded like it might go down in history. Flying wasn't the only reason Isaac didn't want to go. Right before the 2004 primary, 
I inadvertently opened his absentee ballot. He had the nerve to be registered as a fucking Republican. I could not believe my eyes. I don't know any black Republicans. I was not only offended, but confused. I didn't know. I felt like I was married to a Nazi or something. Of course, you have the right to align yourself with whatever party you so choose, I said when I confronted him. But what on earth would possess you to support the Republican Party, Isaac? This was Mr. Millionaire's answer. Because they make sure we get the best tax break. I left his ass standing in the bathroom dripping wet since he was waiting for me to bring him a towel. So it was his dumbass vote that helped reelect that dumbass George Bush twice. I wondered who in the world I was really married to and I was worried about it. I can't lie, though. I spent a whole lot of energy trying to give Isaac as much love as I possibly could, as long as I possibly could, as often as I possibly could. But right after he lost his job, I tried to make him feel valued. I asked him to share his dreams with me, and I listened. He changed his mind about getting his degree in engineering and opted instead for a construction management program. I paid his tuition. When he talked about all the things he wanted to build one day, I shared his enthusiasm. I also slowed down and said no to some travel. The Olympics in Australia was the biggest. I cooked almost every day, washed and folded his work clothes, took pills for car sickness everywhere we drove. You see that sagging fence over there? That's a sign of a rookie. Watching the History Channel and this old house was like foreplay. And wrestling, like witnessing phony cavemen performing acrobatics. I went to football games, which I did not like because it was violent and took too long to make a fucking touchdown. I went camping and fishing, but I didn't like getting dirty and putting stinky, slimy things on the end of my pole and grabbing a wiggling fish that was headed for the hot skillet gave me the heebie-jeebies. Did I complain? No, I did not. I tried to do what made my husband happy. Over the years, Isaac stopped showing interest in what I felt or what I did. I had to bribe him to go, or do, to go to or do anything that didn't have an outcome. Whenever I wanted to talk about my stories, he always seemed to have that remote in his hand. But I'm tired of not feeling respected. Since he's become a successful entrepreneur, Isaac's arrogance has pierced right through his beauty, which is why I don't like him anymore. But make no mistake, I still love him. I just haven't been in love with him for quite some time. It's not easy, an easy thing to admit. And I'm not one of these women who feels like I need a man to complete me. I also don't think that there's only one person in the world meant for you. Sometimes you look up and sometimes your luck runs out. I'm beginning to wonder if a good marriage is even possible. What I do know is that I'm tired of feeling navy blue when I know I have every single right to feel lemon yellow. Ever since I turned 50, I've become more aware of the passage of time and, I'm, and what I'm doing with it. If I drop dead today, what legacy would I leave? Would I have done some of the things that I wanted to do, seen some of the places I wanted to see, and would I, if I really took a few minutes just to think about it, feel as if the time I was blessed with was well spent or had I just bullshitted my way through it? Even though I have an interesting job, it still feels like I should be doing more. All I ever wanted was to do something with my life that would have a positive impact on other people, to do something to make us look in the mirror or slow down long enough to see what our behavior really says about us, mostly our inhumanity, since it leaves red marks. I believe the only way to evaluate how we're living is how we're not living. This is why, one reason why, 
I'm on a mission to start doing things that make me feel good. I've made a vow to start eating healthier and exercising on a regular basis because I know better. I'm 25 pounds away from being fat, and I don't want to start buying my, all my clothes in Encore at Nordstrom's. My goal is to be fit at 52 and 62 and 72. I want to feel better than I look. I'm not trying to be anybody's middle-aged centerfold. I just want to look at myself naked and not be disgusted. <laughs> it may sound naive, but I always thought as you got older, the quality of your life would improve, that things would be smoother, calmer, and you could finally exhale. I'd probably be in a nut house if it weren't for my girlfriends, Bernadine, Robin, and Gloria. Fifteen years ago, we thought we were hot shit. I was 36 and had just moved here from Denver, where I'd been a publicist for the gas company, Thrill Thrill. Bernadine and her then-husband, John, talked me into moving here after a visit when a position at PR opened up at the local TV station. The three of us went to Boston University together, and I was her bridesmaid. She worked in finance for a real estate developer and became a CPA. She introduced me to Gloria, a single parent who had her own hair salon, and Robin, Miss Congeniality. She worked in an executive capacity at an insurance company, was still on the verge of, but was still on the verge of becoming a slut. After years of, our, of, our, after years of being casualties of love, Gloria is the only one who's happily married. Times have certainly changed. We're all so busy. We don't hang out like we used to, don't run our mouths on the phone half the night the way we used to. We don't even gossip about each other the way we used to. We send email or text and forget about happy hour. We don't even know if they still have them. We haven't been drunk since 1999, <laughs> haven't set foot in a nightclub since Rick James had his last hit. And we dance at home. Apparently, we're too damn old to have fun in public places. I don't know why we stopped being social creatures, but it's why Gloria came up with the idea of having Blockbuster Night. Once a month, we kick up our heels at one of our houses. It's something to do. Bernadine cooks since she's our black Julia child. We make our husbands and children disappear. We don't care where they go as long as they are gone for at least four hours. I finally get out of my pajamas, take a cool shower, put on a pair of purple running pants and a pink sweatshirt and grab a bottle of water from the fridge. I go back to my laptop and start looking at some of the sites I'd bookmarked. I hit enter. The screen turns cobalt blue, then goes completely black. I hit. I lean back in my chair thinking the battery must be dead, but I always plug the laptop in when I'm at home, and when I look under the counter, it is. I power off and wait for it to reboot. I don't hear that low blender sound. I don't hear anything. I hit the power button again, but this time, praying I'm not a victim of one of those apocalyptic viruses. And I've got tons and tons of irreplaceable information inside the soul of this computer. I don't hear anything, and nothing I do resuscitates it. I'm just glad I have a backup disk at work. I walk down the hall to Isaac's office. The tiles are cold on my bare feet. It amazes me how neat he keeps it in here. There's a picture on the wall of giant redwood trees in Muir Woods in Northern California. On another, a bulletin board with photos of his recent projects. I sit at his desk, a, a beautiful maple-colored door turned tabletop. I click on the browser and type in the last site I had visited and then hit enter. 
My sight isn't what comes up. My heart is pounding as I see before my eyes a screen full of color photographs and video clips of women giving men blowjobs and three and four of them piled on top of one man and some pleasing each other. I know this is a porn site, but I didn't make a mistake when I typed. I close it and retype the same address. I don't believe it when I see these same nasty people again. I do this a few more times and get the same results. I call my godson, who also happens to be my pretend nephew, John Jr., who also happens to be Bernadine's son, who goes to MIT. He's a computer geek. I explained to him what just happened to my laptop, and now this. Sounds like Uncle's browser's been hijacked. Porn sites are notorious for doing this. How do you know that? It's kind of the norm. But what could have caused it, I ask? Well, it could be a virus, although I doubt that. I think Uncle's been very busy checking out these sites. But how would I be able to find that out? Over the next 15 or 20 minutes, he talks me through a process that gives me access to temporary files, which makes it quite clear that my husband has been having cyber sex with hundreds, if not thousands, of women, and the son of a bitch has two names. He's Isaac Hathaway to me, but Ebony King to all these nasty bitches he's been... He's been jerking off with and having virtual sex with via the little webcam attachment I gave him for a Christmas present. I've watched porn and with Isaac before and before I met him, but what I'm looking at takes it to a whole new level. My teeth feel cold. My fists ball up on their own. I yank open a file drawer and start rummaging through his credit card statements, only to discover he's a fucking gold card member, not just on one site, but on quite a few others, to the tune of a few grand a month. I sit here for the longest, more pissed off than hurt, more disgusted than anything, trying to figure out how long he's been doing this shit. It's cheating any way you look at it, except this feels much worse. It's sneaky as hell. I wonder how Isaac would feel if he saw me masturbating in front of a webcam for men or hell. How about other women? So this is what he's been doing in here while I'm sitting up in bed engrossing a good book? I print out the home pages of 20 or 30 of these sites and scotch taped them on the walls of this freakazoid den. Isaac's been fronting as his home office. Without thinking about what I'm doing, I crawl under the desk, yank the plug out of the socket, carry the computer like a corpse through the great room, outside right across this beautiful redwood deck he built, down the four steps and over to the pool where I drop that sucker in the deep end. This sound, this does not make me feel better. I dry off when I, where I got splashed and sit on the edge of the bed for almost an hour, not moving. When the phone rings, I answer it like someone who's just come out of surgery. Savannah, I hear Sheila say she's my baby sister, my only sister. Hey, I say to Sheila in a cracked voice. Girl, what in the world is wrong with you? Did somebody die? No. I just found out Isaac's been visiting a bunch of porn sites for the longest, and I'm a little pissed off. I hope this isn't all you're tripping on. If you saw the shit he's been doing and how long he's been and how much money he's been spending, I think you'd be a little more than pissed too. Girl, all men money, us men spend money on porn sites. I'm grateful for him if you want to know the truth. Saves me a whole lot of unnecessary energy. As soon as Paul thinks I'm asleep, I hear him tiptoeing down to the basement. I could care less. I'm filing for a divorce. Not over this bullshit, Savannah. Come on. No, this is the cherry. Where is Isaac? You didn't throw him out, did you? He's at a trade show in Vegas. Don't do anything stupid, Savannah. Like what? You didn't bust up his computer, did you?
No. Is it still intact? Yes, it is. This silly shit wouldn't even qualify as grounds for a divorce, okay? The judge would probably laugh you out of court. I'm also miserable. Most married people are miserable, but that's still no reason to get a divorce. I beg to differ with you, Sheila. Just because you and Paul have been living in marriage hell for 20-some-odd years doesn't mean everybody can tolerate it. I love Paul, and he loves me. We've had our share of problems, but everybody does. Well, I can't live like this anymore. Like what? Isaac isn't just a freak. He's also boring as hell. Paul is too, but being boring is also not grounds for a divorce. And hanging out, no pun intended, on porn sites doesn't make him a freak. I'm bored, Sheila. Have you ever wondered if maybe you're the one who's boring? Look at all the great stuff he builds. Paul can barely snap Lego pieces together for our grandkids. Do you think I'm boring? Hell, I don't know. I don't live with you, and I don't know what you like in bed. <laughs> Fuck you, Sheila. This is an issue in your house, baby cakes, not mine. I thank God for Viagra twice a month. And stop being such a prima donna, Savannah. It took more than half your life to find a man to marry, and Isaac is a good one. I know a whole lot of women who would love to have a husband like him. Then one can have him. I would cool my jets if I were in your shoes. You ain't exactly Beyonce, no offense. I know how old I am. It's hard out there, Savannah. If you go through this without really thinking about how you can save your marriage, you'll probably end up regretting it. Did I ever tell you he voted for George Bush? I know you've got to be lying. He's a fucking registered Republican. This is a joke, right? No, I'm dead serious. Now, this is grounds for a divorce, okay? I could not fuck a Republican, let alone be married to one. He needs help. I hear a click on the phone. Oh, Lord, Sheila, is Mama calling me on the other line? Don't hang up. I click her on. Hi, Mama. How you doing? Is everything okay? Everything is fine, but I had to call to tell you I had the weirdest dream last night about you and Isaac. I'm talking to Sheila right now, Ma. Can I call you back in a few minutes? I'm on my way to see that Michael Jackson movie, Finding Neverland. You heard of it? Yes, Mama, I have. I did not feel like telling her it was a British movie with Johnny Depp and Kate Winslet and Michael wasn't in it. Anyway, I'm going with Sheila and those little badass grandkids, so tell her to make sure they go to the bathroom first and don't be late picking me up. I will, Mama. How is Isaac? He's fine. Why would you ask? Because in my dream, you all were getting a divorce over some something stupid, but the dream didn't get, give me no hints. You two doing all right? We're good, Mama. Let me get back to Sheila so she can get over there on time. I love you. Talk to you later. What does she want, Sheila asked. I'm supposed to be walking out the door in a few minutes. The kids think this movie is about Michael Jackson Ranch, Michael Jackson's ranch, and I'm not telling them any different. Anyway, you were saying, I was saying I know how hard it is out here. It was hard 15 years ago, and I'm not letting this stop me from living my life. Oh, police. You are half a damn century old, Savannah, okay? You have had all the time in the world to live your damn life. Well, guess what? This is your life, and it's not a bad one. You're just never satisfied. That's always been your problem. Enough is never good enough, so go ahead and say it. What? Fuck you, Sheila. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. Go to hell, Sheila.
and I love you too. Can we change the subject real quick and then get back and talk about your marriage or divorce tomorrow? I don't have anything else to say about it. You know I've been having problems with Go-Go, don't you? How would I know that? What kind of problems? First, let me say this. Mama's got a big mouth, and you know if you want to keep your business to yourself, don't even think about telling her, as if I don't know this. And please don't tell her about this, okay? Tell her about what, Sheila? Get to the damn point, would you? You know Mama's sitting in front of her window, staring at the curb right now. I'm on my cell phone. To make a long story short, hold on a minute. I'm coming. Go get in the car. Wait. Africa. Take the little ones to go make pee-pee first. Anyway, you know, Gogo just turned 18, even though he's in 11th grade. But you remember when I had to hold him back in kindergarten because he lacked social skills, right? No, I don't, Sheila. The truth is, I don't know which one Gogo is, and I thought he was a she. She and Paul have five or six kids I can't even remember. And I dare not ask what Gogo's real name is. Anyway... He's been hanging around with the wrong crowd here in Pittsburgh, and he got suspended for smoking weed. And I think he might be selling it, or his girlfriend might be selling it, but I was wondering, kind of hoping maybe if he could come and spend a couple or maybe three weeks of the summer with you and Isaac, but since Isaac may or may not be in the picture, maybe just you. Gogo could be a big help around the house and keep you company. What do you think? I love my sister to death, but she always puts me on the spot like this. If I said no, she's going to be pissed or disappointed. But I'm not in any position to be thinking about having my nephew, whom I don't even know, who also happens to be a pothead coming for a summer stint. I don't know how to talk to kids, let alone teenagers. Let me deal with my marriage issue first, Sheila, and then let me think about it when it might be a good time for Gogo to come out. That's cool. Have you ever thought about counseling? We tried it, but counseling only works if people, both people want to save their marriage. I don't. Just don't do anything stupid when he gets home. Cut the man a little slack, Savannah. Could you try to do that? I'll try, I say. And could you please keep your big mouth shut? Girl, I'm the Ziploc queen. Love you, sis. Before I can put the phone in the cradle, it rings in my hand. It's Isaac. You made it. I did, and I'm beat. Traffic was bumper to bumper for almost two hours. That's why I'm just getting around to calling. Is everything going all right? My laptop crashed. For real? I'm sorry to hear that. Would you mind if I used yours? I think I might have a virus. Did I tell you? Didn't I tell you? No, you didn't. Why would you think that? Every time I try to visit a website, it keeps taking me to these porn sites. Well, why would you think it's a virus that's causing it? What else would make it do this? I wouldn't chance it. Then I won't bother. You do have a backup disc at work, don't you? Thank God. But what about you, Isaac? Do you have one? No, I don't. You should, I say, because you just never know when you might need it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. There are mics that, for uh, those who have questions. What are these reserved seats? What's that about? <laughs> I'm not Beyonce. <laughs> hmm? Oh, okie dokie. So does anyone have a question? Yes. 
Hi, Ms. McMillan. I have a question for you. What advice can you give an author who has been rejected by dozens of agents, including yours? <laughs> Uh-oh. You got me scared. No, no, no. What are you submitting? A novel? Um, it's a novel, and I actually submitted two novels, but the last novel was rejected by your agent. That was the only one that she read. Well, she didn't even read it. She just read the query letter. Well, let me just say this, okay? Um, I don't know how long you've been writing. I don't know anything about your work, but I can say this. There are a lot of uh, writers who... Let me just say this, too. Most writers are rejected. Okay? So don't feel, don't feel special. No, but okay? it's, it's dozens. No, dozens. Uh, honey, let me tell you. William Kennedy, who won a Pulitzer for Ironweed, was rejected 13 times for his novel. So that should make you feel better. He won a Pulitzer. Okay? okay. Um, but, on the other hand, sometimes a lot of authors don't want to acknowledge that their work might not be ready. Or it might not be as good as you think it is. That's true. Okay? Um, and in that case, you might want to show it to someone who can be a little bit more critical. Mm-hmm. Someone that's not a relative or a friend or a loved one, but someone who doesn't have a vested interest in your work. Right. Um, because a lot of times, that's usually what it is. Or it could be that you've submitted it to the wrong people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not real sure. Right. But uh, rejection is, comes with the territory. You know, I had a lot of short stories rejected before I was ever published. So, you know, it didn't start with waiting to exhale, honey. Okay? And, and do a little bit more homework. Um, take, do you, have you ever taken any classes? Well, actually, I've been in query, like, not query groups, but critique groups. Led by who? Um, well, not friends, but people in Published the writers? Um, no, no, not published writers, no. That helps. You need to be, if you're going to take a, if you're going to have anyone read your work, let somebody read it who is knowledgeable, who knows the craft, who knows the rules, who knows what you're doing properly and improperly. And if you're going to find anybody that, you know, you can't have a blind leading a blind. Right, that's true. And unfortunately, that's what happens in a lot of these groups. Girl, I loved it. I can't, I don't understand why you're not published. (laughs) You know? That's true. You, you, You don't do it that way. Take a workshop at a local junior, a junior college or something. Um, this is Baltimore. They have some good classes here. Okay. Fine and Tyler. Okay. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank good you. luck. And do not give up. That's the big thing. That's the most important thing. Like a sequel to How Stella Got Her Groove Back. Oh, please. I, I, I know... I know that you have said that your books are just fiction, but when I read your books, it's like this sister done been through this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. You know what? You guys just, you don't have to, you need, first of all, no, Stella got a groove back once. That's all it took. Okay. Um, even though, you know, yes. Okay. I went to Jamaica, met a younger man, okay? By the time I finished that book, Jonathan had never set foot in this country, okay? So, and most of the stuff was made up, 99% of it. I can count two things in that book that really happened, you know? I'm serious. It was a fantasy. 
all of it was a fantasy, okay? And the bottom line is, is that I had the book finished, the draft finished before he came here. So I think they were supposed to be getting married or something in the end. I'm serious. What, what, can I get the movie mixed up with the book? Even though I wrote them both, but you know. It's been a long time, that was 1996. You know, they're, they're, they're fictional characters. I cannot remember all this stuff. So, no. Miss McMillan, my name is Heather McKenzie, and I'm an author, but of poetry. Yes. And I have done quite a few things to push my book. And to tell the truth, my poetry is not being rejected. The local people in Baltimore, on the street, on the bus, down the inner harbor, in my neighborhood, what I do is I try to go, when I first started before I published the book, I started selling them at um, grocery stores, in front of grocery stores in my neighborhood, uh -huh. on the corner down the inner harbor, and they usually buy them. Okay. I have had a radio interview. Well, what's your question? I, I'm, I'm getting to it. <laughs> I'm not trying to be rude. I got a lot on my mind. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I... <laughs> But, okay, I'm just trying to find out if what I am doing, like going on radio and TV shows and, and having um, book signings, is all that I can do, and if there's more that I could do or if I'm on the right track. It sounds like you're doing okay to me. I'm serious. I mean, I'm doing a reading, you know, um, and I'm not... I'm not I don't know much about promoting poetry, um, but it really does sound as if you're, do you're doing something right. I don't know what you expect, how much more you expect. Uh, but again, there's some really good books um, that come out annually on the, po the, 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 the 2010 poetry market, and same with the sister back here, with the um, um, novel writing and everything that you could possibly think of. Um, how to do a query letter, I mean, even really good writing tips on the craft of writing. Poetry, same thing, and places to submit your work and for prizes and all kinds of things, fellowships, all of that is in there. So, pardon? I think it sounds like you're on the right track, and good luck. You're welcome. Thank you. I was just saying I've been a fan of hers for a very long time. I'm an accountant, so I have no aspirations of being an author. My question, <laughs> my question to you is this. Reading this book, actually, Terry, I got a little pissed. I was like, everybody's having a fucking miserable life. But Watch your mouth. Excuse me. <laughs> and don't give, sit here and give away anything, okay? Because exactly. there are people that have not read this book. Okay, cool. But my question to you is, what stage were you through your divorce? Because it seemed like when you wrote this, it was like very like dark. Or... No. No, you were like. Did was... you read the whole book? I'm halfway through it, but like I said, it's some miserable part. So. Well, you know, it's called getting to happy. Where do you think they're supposed to start?
I will say this. Um, first of all, let me just say this. Almost every book, every novel that's written, it, it, it's, it's based on conflict. Most, most characters have unfulfilled wishes. In some cases, things happen to them that throws their life off kilter, puts them on tilt. And one of the reasons why I even wrote this book was because I knew and had met and seen and observed too many women who were in their mid-40s and upwards who were miserable or sad who had been through divorces, their husbands not necessarily were gay, but they had been deceived and betrayed. In some cases, some women never had a husband and always thought they would have one, never had children, or the kids had gone and off to college and now they were stuck at home with this whole empty nest syndrome. And um, there are women who, whose life had just not added up to what they had hoped. And so this story was an attempt to show what happens when things happen outside of your control and also what happens when you make sure that they do happen that still causes you some kind of grief. And the whole point was is, you know, a lot of us get knocked down. Um, I mean, really knocked down. And a lot of us have all been through our own forms of hell. But to me, the whole point of writing this story and also what I see in my life and all of our lives as women in particular um, is that when you turn 50, it's not the end of the world. Getting a divorce is not the end of the world. Your husband being gay is not the end of the world. My life is not over. And, um, but the whole point is, is that it's not what happens when you're down there. It's how you get back up. And what you do when you get back up. So the only way I could even go through this with my characters because uh, I had already sort of been through a lot of this when I started this book. Uh, but I had, yet, I had not quite fit, forgiven my husband. But the other thing is that, um, you know, a lot of times there are a lot of us out here who are very bitter and angry and have never recovered from all kinds of things. And, you know, the past can kill you. Your spirit, your everything. And bitterness can can put you in a position where you will never let anybody in. With, um, and, and, and I don't think that we deserve that. And we're smart enough and old enough to know that we are entitled to happiness. And, um, and, and, and so the whole point is, yes, you know, I didn't ask my husband to be gay and come out of the closet on nationwide TV and try to humiliate me and extort me. I didn't ask for him to do that, but he did it. And, it's, and it really devastated me in front of all of you, okay? But I came in here and stood up anyway. Um, and the bottom line is, is that, you know... Well, it's not just that, but the bottom line is, is that you can only stay down so long. And after a while, it gets a little boring. And not only that, but it's, um, it's too draining. And I just got mad at myself for allowing another human being, and particularly a man, straight or gay, um, to knock the wind out of me. And I still had myself left. So I see this, this is act three, if it was a play. And um, the party is just getting started. That's how I see it. Terry. 
Terry, I don't have a question, but it's just a comment. I'm Where right, are you? Right here in front of you. Look down. Look down. Right here. Oh, oh, oh. I think that you're awesome. Thank you. I fell in love with you when I read Mama when I was in college. Thank you. Your imagery, the words that you say, just the stuff that comes out of your mouth sounds like stuff that would come out of my mouth to be specific. Heffa. Mm-hmm. I just love that. Thank you. And I just think that you're awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. A lot of people have started to um, conflate, like, your life with the books. And so are you considering writing a memoir or an autobiography at Mm-mm. some point? <laughs> I don't think, um, no, I don't think, my, my life is not that interesting. Um, Hello. It really, I mean, you know, I mean, most people that write memoirs have a whole lot of tragic things happen to them in their childhood, and then they, you know, are really effed up, and, um, and then they go through something, and usually therapy, drugs, and all that, you know, and I, you know, my, my childhood and all that stuff wasn't, the most tragic thing that happened to me was my ex-husband, and I have dealt with that, and it's not worth putting in a book. How do I feel about street lit? Um, first of all, I don't have a whole lot of respect for it. Um, a lot of it is insulting, uh, degrading, especially to women. And the covers alone, are, to me, are enough to make me throw up. Um, I'm so sick of seeing naked, beautiful women. Well, the titles, please. Um, but the, the bottom line is, is a lot of them just aren't well written. And... Um, they basically glorify all the things that we fought for against in the civil rights movement. You know, I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing to be able to paint a picture of what real life is like in the hood, okay? But it's another thing to glorify it. And also, if, it was, if these stories were written, you know, good fiction, good storytelling usually gives you hope from, 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 from fairy tales on up. Even science fiction is hopeful, you know. Um, but there's nothing redeeming about a lot of these stories, and that's what I find insulting. Um, and they tell the same story over and over and over. And, you know, there's only so many ways you can kill somebody and only so many ways you can give a blowjob. But that's all they do is sex is gratuitous, violence is gratuitous, and it's all, we, they do it to each other. And they don't seem to care. And that's where I have a problem. You know, if they cared and it was redeeming, that's different. Cause even rappers have woke up. You know, they are starting to get it. You know, too many of us did at 25. You know, so it's like, you know, bang, bang, MF, you know, all this kind. People get tired of it. You know, um... And it's okay to paint a picture of something that is ugly, but know that it's ugly. You know, they don't seem to know it. And plus, a lot of it is starting to cancel each other. They're starting to cancel each other out. You know, I mean, really. Um, I wish some of them would really take some writing classes. And I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal. That's not where I'm coming from. Because some of them actually can almost kind of write but, I mean, the thing is, they don't edit these stories. There's things in them that don't make sense. The grammar is... 
You know, it's like, you know, and everything is about money, 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 money. And bling, bling, bling is they have to, everybody has a label. No matter what they wear, you got to describe every, every designer. They should just do ads for all these people. Because it's like, and the thing that what they don't understand, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Hello, um, my name is Sebastian. I'm a high school English teacher. I was just kind of wa wondering, what is your writing process? Would you revisiting your characters 15 years later? What was your process of, you know, bringing back these characters to life, or as you said in your um, introduction, pulling them off the shelf? Just kind of curious about that, so I can share it with my students. In high school? Yes. Not your book, but the writing process. Oh, I was going to say. They shouldn't even be concerned about this. Hopefully one day they won't have to be. Um, well, that sort of seems like, seems like two questions you're asking. My writing process is I just, I get up at the crack of dawn, usually 5.30. And um, I meditate for about 15 minutes. I do a breathing exercise and then I pray. And then I write. But I have my coffee afterwards. And before I start writing, I get my coffee. Um, and then I usually work for about four hours, usually, or until I'm emotionally spent. But I usually work, when I'm working on a novel, I work in chapters. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't try to make it perfect the first time. I don't even care. Um, and I usually write an entire draft of a novel that way. So it's like there are holes in it. Things don't make sense. Sometimes I don't know a character's name or everything about them. Although most, most, in most cases, most of the main characters I do, because I do this whole bio, which is one of the reasons why I think people believe, often believe that my characters are real. I, I, years ago, I went and got an um, application for a job from McDonald's, and, um, and then I expanded it, and I use it on my computer as a character profile, but... I know everything from what size shoe they wear their favorite, their favorite class in elementary school to middle school to high school, if they've ever been in love, ever had their heart broken, what their favorite color is, if they're allergic to something, you know, do they lie, do they pay their taxes, they ever had a check bounce, um, what their biggest secret is, um, all kinds of stuff. Do they pay their bills on time? Who is it they hate? What is it about themselves that they don't like? What do they wish they could change? And what's their biggest challenge right now? Among other things, okay? I know if they dye their hair, um, if they have skin problems, bad breath, all kinds of stuff. And there are often things that never make it into the book. But I know these people and they become real. So I usually start there and I start with a question. You know, like if it's a photograph, what's wrong with this picture? And that's, that's why I, I start out with, with problems, because a novel is about conflict. Otherwise, I'd be writing a Cosby show. Um, what, you know, the long and short of it was, I think I almost kind of answered the question about how I came up, maybe, anyway, I'm trying to do it fast. Um, when I realized that there were, after my little divorce and all that, I started realizing, like I said, about how many different women I was observing that were sad. And that, 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 that it, too many women seemed like they had just flatlined, just thrown in the towel. Like, this is the, what, the hand I've been dealt, and this is, this is the hand I'm playing. And, and 
I'm leaving out a lot, but something led me to this. And it wasn't just my little situation. It, that was not it at all. And so I um, came up with four different scenarios that I thought would ring true um, that some issues that a lot of women in this age group might be facing. And in so doing, I realized I'd already told one novel with four characters, and I didn't want to do it again uh, or write another one. And then that's when it dawned on me where I had left off with uh, the women from Waiting to Exhale, and I realized technically that they were the perfect candidates. And it was just uncanny how that worked out. Um, and that's how it kind of worked. I have a question. Um, what author do you enjoy reading? Oh, come Hi, on. My name is Sarah. What, what author? Yeah. That's what a hard question enjoy, to ask a writer. enjoy reading? Huh? I'm about to start reading 32 Candles by Ernesta Carter. You should read her. I know it's good. I've had three copies of it, and I've given them away, and everybody that's reading it loved it. But I've just been a little busy. I'm going to read Freedom by Jonathan Franzen. I like the corrections. Um, I read a lot of my contemporaries, but I also go back and sneak and read, you know, little James Baldwin, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, Gene Thompson is a short story writer I love. Um, I still haven't read Tipping Point. Um, I, I read, my taste in, 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 in is pretty eclectic. I read all kinds of writers. And it's hard to say, you know, I don't think, I don't know how you could say that about anybody, that somebody is, I mean, I have thousands of books in my house. That's why this whole Kindle thing, uh-uh, no. I like to go look at the shelf and say, and, and, and even this, I like, to, I like to see that, you know, and touch it. And plus, I can't wait to see how people read to their kids on a Kindle. Good night, moon. <laughs> and you guess what? You can't get your book signed on a Kindle or an iPad. I'm not signing it. I'm not. That's good. See, you end up spending the money twice. But anyway. Well, that's a good way to end. Thank you, Ms. McMillan. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it.